have some news to share. We actually have two big announcements for Squash Radio. And why is today big? Well, here are the headlines. We are really excited and proud to be launching a new show called The Breakdown. The other big news, we have another sponsor for Squash Radio. Let me give you a little background on both these developments. The new show. So for a while, we've been looking at ways to try and mix up the content we normally do and adding a little variety to our long form interviews. Now we think we have just the solution with a new series called The Breakdown. This is where we focus on current happenings in the squash world. And it's hosted by me, Connor O'Malley, and Bill Buckingham, a former colleague. As Bill masterfully wrote, Bill and Connor didn't agree on much when they worked together. And the time apart show that things haven't really changed that much. We give our views, context, and insights on what's making the news both on and off court. In this premiere episode, we dance around the subject of Olympic inclusion and it can neither be confirmed or denied whether this influenced the title of our show. Before we jump into our show, I just want to share a quick intro about our new sponsor. They are Baya Sports, and they're on a mission to develop the best court shoe ever. They first focus on squash because the rigors of squash and the beating that it puts on any shoe. Well, if they could solve that problem, that shoe could definitely perform in lots of other sports too. So a little bit about the founder of Bias Sports. They are Nathan Dugan and Mike Portis, both from England, both played on the professional squash tour, both now exceptional teaching professionals in the United States. But now they are pooling their knowledge, expertise, and passion and driving it towards developing the best shoe ever. You gotta take these for a test drive yourself. Go to squashradio.com and check out Bias Sports to see their latest Force X. Okay, thanks for listening to that, and let's jump into our show. What about this? This call is being recorded. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Breakdown. Here's a little background on my co-host, Bill Buckingham, also known as Buck. Bill is no stranger to being behind the mic himself. And in fact, he's part of the elite ranks since he has been an MC on some of the squash's biggest stages. Here's a quick clip of his highlights. Yeah, yeah, I was lucky enough to do the US Open a couple of years back when the premier MC in, in the world, Gilly Lane, shout out Gilly, um, had the personal affair to attend during the semifinals. So I was put into that role. And then because of that, the folks out at Black Ball out in Egypt had seen some video of it and asked me to come out and do their events. So I did the 2018 men's inaugural Black Ball, and then I did the women's that March. Like anyone practicing their craft, it's rare to jump to the biggest stage right off the bat. So we also asked Bill about his path and his experiences in putting in the hours behind the mic. We'll do squash first. I've been doing what I affectionately call the the minor leagues of the of the basement of Drexel for years and years. I think since 2011, since we started doing the U.S. Open at Drexel, I've been doing the the lower courts, which include sweeping the floor, wiping the glass, and interviewing players. So it's kind of like riding the buses in AAA. So I finally got called up uh, called up to the big leagues during the the 2018 U.S. Open. But yeah, otherwise, yeah, weddings. I officiate weddings. I in a previous career before squash, I did uh, some television, some you know local travel television, my famous Burger Wars video, which I think uh, you probably 
I think it has a hundred views and I think you viewed it about 80 times. So, you know, things such as that, a lot of uh, little local television and bike races in which I emceed bike races when I was working in New Haven, Connecticut in the sports industry. So yeah, yeah, I've had, I've had a little bit of an experience with that for sure. All right. Well, that's, I'm sure, plenty to get started. So take a listen to Bill and Connor breaking it down. I think first, we're good. First ever so, pod, baby's first podcast. So, Bill, it sounds like you've done a lot of work being an MC. Have you ever thought about being a commentator? Um, yeah, I mean, it, it would be fun. I, my fear is that I wouldn't be very good at it. I think people underestimate how hard it is. Joey and PJ are like fantastic at it, as are Jenny Duncoff, Lee Drew. Yeah. And Vanessa are awesome. But I think when you, if you listen to a lot of the PSA or watch a lot of the PSA TV broadcasts, when they're doing a tournament that say has both men and women, and there's match after match after match, and those guys need a break because doing that stuff is, is arduous. And they get a, a, a tour player or someone else to come on to fill in for one of them. The gap in uh, <laughs> the gap is incredible. And it's it's sometimes very painful to listen to. They, they strike gold lightning in a bottle every once in a while. I think, I forget which tournament it was. It was just recently, actually. I, I think her name, and I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Lisa Aitken. She's Scottish. She's like 30th in the world or something like that, or whatever her rank is. I'm not positive. She was fantastic. Mm. But uh, <laughs> I've, I've heard other ones, and I'm not going to obviously drag anyone. <laughs> and But it's been awful, like painful to listen to. And I think Joey and PJ and those folks will agree. It's a lot of these people, it's tough to drag words out of their mouths and you know to keep the broadcast compelling. So as hard as it is, I think the last thing that Joey or PJ or Lee or Vanessa or Jenny want to do is have to also drag along another person. So I'd be fearful that I would be that person that they would have to drag along. So in the past, Joey and PJ have both offered me the opportunity to do it at the TOC for a game. And I've, I respectfully declined at this point to do that. So um, it, it's funny because the Joey and PJ obviously were solid players in their day, but like Lisa Aiken's like ranked 30th in the world and probably doesn't have a squash Q rating <laughs> that a ton of non-huge squash fans have heard, haven't heard of her. And she was fantastic. Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, baseball managing or things like that. You don't have to be a great player to be a great announcer type of thing. But yeah, um, Joey and PJ are, they, they are incredible at what they do. They are a lot of times I just turn on the volume and listen to them talk and don't even watch the squash, to be honest with you. Listen to them, uh, and I think uh, there are segments that they do uh, before the events, uh, during the events, some of the fun things they do with dressing up in costumes. So definitely undervalued, underused, and uh, could be used a lot more in the world of squash. Uh, they're they're very compelling, very funny, and uh, a great uh, great asset for the game for sure. Certainly, if the using the Malcolm Gladwell the ten thousand hour rule, they've logged that in several times over at this. Point. Absolutely, yeah. they're, they're opinionated. They're not afraid to say what they say. The only thing they do that I am against, and I think I've told them this, and but you know what, they're they're good. It's it's what they do. Is I don't think that they should number one uh, predict the matches. I don't think anybody who's doing play by play of a sporting event, and I think you'll find that in football, baseball, you ask those guys who's going to win the game, like Nance or Romo, and those guys in football, they won't make predictions of games that they're. Uh, announcing and I don't think that they should do that either um, I think when I think in football obviously there's a gambling aspect to that and they don't want uh, you know the announcers to show their bias based on they may be gambling may not be gambling so I, I don't think that's professional that they do do that but otherwise I have you know I think they're awesome well that's a tough one because there isn't 
you know, football, which has such a robust engine behind it, right? I mean, they're wearing a lot of hats and I'd be curious who they would think was going to win the match or not. Right? Yeah, I, I think I think what it comes to, and again, uh, since gambling isn't so pervasive in squash in the United States anyways, not yet anyways, I, I just think if, if you predict someone's going to win a match, you're a professional, you want to have your, um, you know, your, you know, not, integrity is not the right word, the validity of your opinion you're going to complain about a referee's call because, hey, you pick, say, Diego Elias to win the match and a stroke call went against Diego Elias that you might have disagreed with. You're going to be more vociferous about that because whether you are or not, people are going to think you are because you picked Diego Elias to win the match. So I just think that and that's why you know football announcers and baseball announcers don't make predictions on matches because there's a there'll be a perceived bias. And that's the last thing you want when you listen to someone. I do have a sort of segue here, but I didn't want to pass up the opportunity to kind of highlight as an example, what PJ and Joey do so well is is the creativity aspect, right? That that yeah. Batman and Robin thing yeah. that yeah. they did in Chicago and continue to do is it's brilliant. When they were like a fireman, this was at the, the World Teams. Like, yeah, that was so awesome. There's there so much creativity there, yeah. but you know, I think what you're also highlighting is we're using the comparison of squash to football. Yeah. Yet the economics behind that couldn't sure. be more farther apart. Sure. So part of the segment that we we're talking about today that could help chip away that would be the ever top of mind conversation of squash and the Olympics. Yeah. Um, interesting. And for another time, uh, this squash Olympics obviously is a hot topic right now because of the recent announcement of uh, breakdancing and the breakdancing's inclusion in the Olympics. I think gambling would probably be something that would more bring squash closer to football or any of the other major sports. But that's, I think that's a topic we're going to delve into, uh, at a later time, but yeah, the Olympics, the breakdancing, um, so let's just uh, give the kind of 30 second overview of sure. if anyone hasn't been paying attention, what just occurred. Sure. Uh, and again, just what I read that for the 2024 Paris Olympics, breakdancing uh, will be introduced as a sport and will take place at a guess. And again, I don't know sure I can pronounce where it's going to be, but a very high profile spot in Paris. Um and obviously rankling the uh, the legions of squash fans and other fans of other sports, obviously, but rankling squash fans for our continued non-inclusion into the games. Um, it, it's, it's, you know, I think as a squash fan and a squash player, they almost feel like we're getting trolled by the Olympic Committee at this point. I mean, it was one thing when golf and tennis and, and, and things such as that get included and you could always... We always had our arguments, well, it's not the pinnacle, like the Masters is the pinnacle of golf, so why would they include golf in the Olympics? And Wimbledon or U.S. Open's the pinnacle of tennis, and at least had the arguments, and there was like discussion and things such as that, and there were reasons those sports got included. Um, but lately, you know, you're getting skateboarding and competitive wall climbing and surfing, which, you know, fair, I don't think uh, belongs in that conversation. And now, I mean, I, I, I think if it was like billiards or darts, there wouldn't be as much angst about it. I mean, it would be just like it well they picked it you know they picked a different sport and here's the reasons why i think it's breakdancing and myself included don't know a lot about breakdancing so we have no idea why they would include breakdancing to us that's just as random as like grocery shopping you know i mean let's make grocery shopping a sport and i think because we don't know anything about it and i think if people uh, take a deep dive into uh, breakdancing and its evolution while it may not solve all the wounds of us uh, squash fans uh, i think you might uh, take a little different look uh, at why they included it and excluded squash so i think it's the exclusion of squash obviously is the the biggest wound and but i think again uh, i think just just the breakdancing is just such a such a not an obvious sport as it yeah. were i think you put it well that this is what i try and do is and I, I almost have i can add an extra couple layers of hats for different reasons but you know we're squash fans first 
And mm-hmm. so it's just, it just hurts to yeah. continue. Like we want to be at the stance so bad because of so many reasons, like we respect the athletes so much. We just want to be at the same stage and we think that the sport is there. Right. Right. Um, you know, and then there's what I think has happened and we're not fully acknowledging that this is a business and sports as a business has changed dramatically. If you remember, and you're way more versed in this because of your depth and breadth of knowledge within the sports world. But do you remember the older Connor? Just say it. You're way, no, no, older, no, no. You're way older than me. That's fair. That's fair enough. <laughs> but do you remember the conversation that used to happen of like the professional athletes in the Olympics versus amateur? So that was a huge debate. When do you think that debate stopped really like we don't talk about that now uh well i think because all sports are professional now right i mean there's they're, they're, the dream team started it and I, I think the dream team was the olympics first grasp at staying relevant and they, they probably you know the people well, from the u.s perspective what about the 1980s russia versus the u.s well that's the difference they were pretending that they weren't professional there's a difference between pretending right. you're not professional and then outright saying hey look the best athletes in the world are going whether they're paid or not are going to be in the olympics and so I, there was evidence of that let's say in the the 80s then i think always probably i mean of course i mean you're looking look at the and again not to interrupt you but the olympics kind of started losing its relevancy after the eastern Bloc countries started to fall the natural rivalries again this is from a united states perspective um the natural rivalries were gone i mean it was no more like 72 basketball team against russia the 80 hockey team it it was it's hard it's hard to get excited about a usa belarus matchup right Mm-hmm. Or a U.S. Soviet matchup was, you know, Russia, Russia, Russia. That was something that if they were again grocery shopping against each other on NBC in the <laughs> '80s at eight o'clock at night, I would have watched it. Once that lost, it's it's you know, once that sense of Cold War competition got lost, the Olympics started to lose a little bit of its relevancy, and uh, and it's continued on. Yeah, I think that squash is. We've had probably the most unfortunate timing where we we had this significant opportunity for the 2012 Olympics of London, but it showed, I think, the transition point of what you're talking about and really um, how to stay relevant in the modern world. And really, they're treating this as a complete business. And the facts are squash hasn't proven that we're a commercially viable business. Mm-hmm. I think that's the elephant in the room that we're not talking about. I think we're... Yeah. Yeah. The economics, if we have to trade the economics of golf versus squash, which would you pick? Well, I think golf golf is not not a great example. And the only reason I say so, I know golf is in the Olympics. And I think the only to my opinion, and I think it's been widely reported also the only reason that golf made the Olympics is because of Tiger Woods. And I don't think golf is long for the Olympics, to be honest with you. I think golf is losing its relevancy because Tiger Woods is starting to fade as the number one player. He was so compelling that he brought golf to another level of um cognizance among among sports fans and now that he's kind of uh waning if as you will as it were um in his career i think golf will lose its relevancy it's still the zeros in the bank account there for sure for sure if you think it's it's stock going down i get it but like the the economics are very different so i think for sure for sure now now there's an element of also relevancy and how do we anchor um so breakdancing I'm just as hurt and disappointed about squash not being the Olympics too. But if they're banking on the future generations and how do we stay relevant? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I've never seen a breakdown seen this in the competition. So but I Connor, know it's very culturally relevant. For sure. And so, Connor, you're lucky to have someone on your show today who has actually consumed a bit of breakdancing over the weekend. Oh, all right. So, um, We'll bring it down. <laughs> exactly. The history, I'd, I'd have to read, go to my notes to read the history of it, which was, was actually pretty interesting. But uh, I think 
uh, more the compelling part of breakdancing to current TV or Olympic executives or whomever is number one, the sponsorship. Red Bull is like a huge proponent of breakdancing the Red Bull World Championships and and so on and so forth. But I think it's also the way we consume things these days. I actually watched the 2019 um, World Breakdancing Championships, the final match this weekend. And you know how long it took me to watch from introduction to the judges awarding the winners, you know, with the whole production. Uh, if you look at it on YouTube, give me a time of how long do you think that whole thing took of the final match? I think I know where you're going with this. And so if you'd ask me without that sort of like lead up, I probably yeah. didn't answer, but I'm, I got to say 10 to 15 minutes. Seven minutes and 19 seconds. And wow. that was, that was, with a lot of hype, a lot of hype leading in, uh, a break, a 90 second, just like squash, a 90 second break in between. The parallels to squash and breakdancing are actually pretty funny if you watch it and then read yeah. a little bit. The 90 second break in between is actually the thing that was jumped out at me. Well, so, the oh, for two minutes, but for again, sure, no, for sure, uh, for sure. Um, so, so break it, break it. Like what's the competition? So I only watched the final match. So I imagine these folks uh, got to this point by, you know, winning their earlier matches and, and came down to each other. And basically they, um, I, I compare it to another Olympic sport. I could compare it to right now. It's a much more enjoyable version of watching um, the floor routine. Individuals or team? No, it's, it's, well, I, it's, no, it's definitely individuals at this point. There okay. may be like teams, like loosely affiliated teams, like team Red Bull or something. I don't know that. But two competitors, two dancers, they get introduced. One of them goes out, does his routine for a set amount of time. The other one jumps on the mat, does their routine. They do another routine, another routine, 90 second break. And then they come back. It's kind of like a rap battle, if you've ever seen that. Sure. Um, where they go, but they go back and forth. I compare it to the floor exercise where, you know, the gymnast comes out on the floor and does her tumbling routine or his tumbling routine and jumps and then, then gets judged. It's actually more exciting because so picture a gymnastic meet where Nadia Komenich, which I may be dating myself for that reference, um, Nadia Komenich comes out, does her exercise routine on the mat, and then she does it for 30 seconds. And then Mary Lou Retton comes out and does it like, and says, no, mm -hmm. you did that. I'm going to top that. And then Nadia Komenich gets another chance to come out. You did that. I'm going to top that. And it goes back and forth like that. And then they judge and whoever does uh, the best wins. So it was very compelling, very athletic. Um, obviously not anything I'm going to stay up and watch, but right. easily consumed for sure. And uh, the music, the, everything that, you know, the, so high level production, high level production. Yeah. And which were the countries, if you can remember, that I don't, I don't remember. Um, I don't remember w w what the countries were represented, uh, to be honest with you. So I don't mm -hmm. remember that. What, what I did here is because there was, a, you know, some play by play type of thing. So the other parallels to squash players is so they, these guys don't make a lot of money, the competitors, even though, you know, Red Bull sponsors and their main thing is to vie for sponsorship to become a international competitor, but they don't make a ton of money participating where they make their money and see if this sounds familiar is they make most of their money from lessons and exhibitions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but uh, yeah, teaching and exhibitions is where they make their money. So very, very, uh, very comparable to uh, to squash players. So they have a little more in common than, than they may think. In the end, it's how it's consumed. It's so quick. It's so visual. It, it's something that people, uh, you know, in the end, if a squash match is on and that's on, obviously I'm going to watch a squash match. But if you took people who are not fans of either and put them side by side, I'm thinking that more people would watch the breakdancing for better or worse. So I have almost like a two minute quick context here where I think what you were just spelling out was also like presentation matters, right? Mm -hmm. And how to package it. For sure. And one of the most watched performances of squash period was the Commonwealth Games. I believe it was 2015. That was in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. And it broke 
BBC Records. Like, uh, so it was one of the most watched events yeah. of the entire Commonwealth game. So well over a million views. So right. it's just interesting to see like that we do have an audience here. But basically, going, there has been a shift of treating the Olympics as a business. And the way that they used to measure the Olympics was it was a cap at 10,500 athletes. It was an original cap of 28 sports. Mm-hmm. This is when baseball, softball was coming in and out. And right. then we, we were vying for it. And now the hard ceiling is the 10,500 athletes, but they're pushing towards more sport inclusion. Right. And gender equality, for sure. I mean, breakdancing is bigger than I thought it was doing a little bit of diving into it this weekend. It's again, I thought the same thing as a squad. like, you effing kidding me, breakdancing. But, you know. It, it's it's a it's viable. I mean, we'll we'll see how it produces and how it performs. And uh, and by 2024, breakdancing may be something that you see on a Saturday afternoon. Breakdance at Red Bull breakdancing. I mean, you see bull riding. The things you see on TV for sport, and you don't see squash. I mean, it just <laughs> it, it, it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, again, darts, billiards, things such as that. So, well, one of the issues and the feedback that we would get, the IOC International Olympic Committee would give us direct feedback about our bids. So the 2012 bid, the 2016 bid, the 2020, there's some consistencies, but we, we as a sport, I think significantly address them. So it's just interesting. We're not, I don't think, well, I certainly don't know currently what the gaps are towards the, right. that, right. that it was, wasn't watchable in terms of TV production, everything from the way the court was to the broadcast. And I would say that is no longer an issue, right? In my opinion. Right. Women weren't as highlighted or presented right. in the same way or treated with parody and I'm happy to say, I think that that has significantly changed. Mm-hmm. And then it was refereeing and we've made improvements, but I think that's still a lingering issue in my opinion. Yeah. It's still an issue in the sport, but I wonder my lob over to you is actually, let's get highly creative. If you could just imagine how to repackage the sport. Sure. Hard blanche as anything. What do sure. you think, given the context of breakdancing to what we might be aiming for? Sure. I, I, I think the number one biggest issue is that I think for a, a non-squash player can't appreciate the difficulty and the athleticism of the sport from watching it on TV. It's almost sometimes it's almost difficult to watch it when you're in person on a glass court as opposed to watching it on like a club court or something like that. If you watch like two good players play on a club court, you're like, holy shit. These guys are amazing. The reflexes, the athletic, the speed, everything just blows you away, right? You go to a glass court event, it's kind of a bigger environment, like you're kind of farther away and you just hear the bang of the ball against the glass. It kind of loses a little bit of that. So picture then on TV, if you don't know, and so you see the slow motion of the people like lunging for the ball, you don't appreciate it. So I don't know if that's overcomable in our sport, but I think the things that are, are number one, I don't think three out of five could ever make the Olympics. I think it would have to be two out of three. I think that'd be the only way to go. Uh, three out of five matches leading up to it, I, ju- I just don't think would be consumable in this day and age. So that, number one. Number two, and this is the one, this is the one that I, I have arguments with people all the time who are involved with squash, the, the squash purists, and um, is the lets and strokes. And while I say refereeing, people in squash complain about the refereeing. People in every sport complain about refereeing. Of course, football, yeah. Football refereeing, baseball umpiring, gymnastics, breakdance. Believe me, the breakdancing judges, <laughs> they're going to be scrutinized. I mean, like it's a sport that nobody really knows what the criteria is. But either way, gymnastics, figure skating, all that kind of stuff. It always comes down like criticism of the referees. Every sport, you name it. Soccer, football, everything. So I think... And problem in squash is the lets and strokes. It's such a gray area that I think the way that they're going to need to repackage it to, and again, my opinion only, and take it for the nickel it's worth is, I think there should be no dissent a lot on lets and strokes. 
I'd say the, the referees caused, I mean, baseball, the, the baseball umpiring, it, baseball changed when they stopped allowing managers and players to dissent on balls and strikes because otherwise every call players would step out of the box managers would argue games would drag on and in squash for somebody who doesn't watch squash and then you watch a player after every point and certain players arguing talking complaining still could get your replay if you want but you can't dissent otherwise you basically just have to accept the call and play on and i think in the level from juniors on up college professional everything if they just had a fast hard and fast rule there is no dissenting on strokes and lots i think that's that and the two out of three i think would be the major steps we could take to get in the olympics and again only my opinion. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word about our sponsor. Hey, quick time out and let's talk sports. How about Baia Sports? If you check out their website, you will quickly notice a few things. The attention to detail comes through loud and clear. But this is an example of a truly exceptional product. Think iPhone. And maybe you're an Android fan or Samsung person. I get it. But there has to be a lot of respect given to the iPhone and what it did to propel forward both design and function. It's sleek and easy to use and looks great. Well, in many ways, that's the Bia Force X. One thing that might be confusing to you is how can a great shoe be so affordable? While Bia Sports is embracing the latest trends being a 21st century company and is a direct-to-consumer brand meaning they're cutting out the middleman and passing on the savings to you, the customer. This shoe could easily be $180 or $200, even more. But instead, you get this great looking and performing shoe at around the $70 or $115 price point, which is not only a deal, it's almost a steal. I personally use these shoes and I like them just as much on court as I do using it as a casual shoe, meaning I actually have two pairs. You really got to check them out. You can find the links on squashradio.com. And unlike other shoes where you have to break them in, these shoes, they are performance ready, straight out of the box. Bia Force X. Take it for a test drive from Bia Sports. Like you should buy a pair. Check it out. We hope you enjoy the show. next part we can go to is, is talking more about how the format but i agree with you the current scoring system and knowing that the way that this the ioc wants to start packaging the olympics it's not going to convert over right the two out of three which has been experimented a few different times and i've seen it it actually just as when we move from hand in hand, hand out nine point scoring or 15 point scoring down 11 it actually changes the way that the players play and i saw that the two out of three games we're going just as long, sometimes like 15 minutes, because they were rallying more. So I think scoring is an important thing. I don't think two out of three is just a solution. One, potentially, which I give a lot of credit to. We've all thought about it in terms of alternative scoring methods, but really someone has put this into uh, a lot of energy, a lot of thinking, a lot of thought. And do you know where I'm going with this? Uh, yes. Uh, is it Ram scoring or Rom scoring? However, yeah. however it's Ram. Yes. Ram or Rom scoring. Yep. Right. And it's, uh, you know, big credit to a huge game changer of the sport, Ramy Shore. You know. So, so, so in in elevator pitch, as they say, tell me what Rom scoring is. I I don't know. Um, I watched so, it. I watched it at the TOC last year, and I still don't know. Yeah, I you know I think that they're sort of incubating it, but the purpose is to just increase excitement. Mm -hmm. So that's the what I can see that they're heading towards. And I'm going to get this wrong, and I'll encourage Rami to correct us. But I believe it's more of a time game. Mm -hmm. So shifting towards time, 
So you get X amount of time in order to score as many points, right? And But then that's a game. So it's kind of like, hey, regardless if you won by X amount of Delta points, you just go on, like you won that game. But then it gets down that there is a sudden death timebreaker. So it tries to know that this is a fixed amount of time that's going to be going on while also trying to maximize excitement of like the sudden death. So So what's the downside of it? Like if I watched it, what would I pick apart? I don't know yet. You know, I mean, part of it is I don't think there's enough truth be told. I don't think there's enough sample set to really know. I would encourage this is basic research and development and testing and experimenting. And so I think this is the kind of direction to head in to figure it out. And so, um, yeah, I, you know, and by the way, we have done that in the sport a long time we've evolved for sure for sure switching over to par 11 obviously yeah instead of the high ho nine change the sport i mean we know we were working tournaments when we first started working together and i think our first tournament uh, <laughs> of many is being at, I think it was Yale during the nascent years of the high school championships and they're still playing high ho nine. And it was like 11 o'clock at night and a kid. And uh, I think for like St. George's or something was up to love and like five love. And we're like, Oh God, thank God we're going to get out of here by 11. <laughs> Next thing you know, it's yeah. one o'clock in the morning and we're still sitting at this gym and that wasn't something that could go on. And so I'm not saying that match itself, changed things to Harlem scoring, but in my mind, that was the tipping point. There is a movement there. I mean, again, the professional level is sort of, they have been at the vanguard of testing this. And then you look at them testing and then there's adaptation throughout the sport. So you also made another comment about the the referee and I completely agree and needs to be simplified and more basically get back to calling balls and strikes versus, right? Like, let's try and make this more clear about what we're doing. But there's an element that the players are basically the way I look at this, they're trying to influence the outcome of not maybe that call, but future calls. Oh, for sure. Or, or for they're sure. just trying to get a break. Either one, but to the fan, it's 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 not good for the sport. I mean, I understand what they're doing and I understand why they're doing it. And baseball was the same way. And if you argue a lot, you're going to get the next call. That's what that's always, always the feeling. But it, it happens so often and it just breaks up the continuity and some great matches just get ruined watching. And I'll, I'll flick it off if I see two players and all they do is strokes and lots, strokes and lots and argue and complain after every point, I'll be like, click off. I liked your thoughts on that. The one other thing would be, so that's the scoring system and that, but what do you think of the format? Uh, of? So right now, I believe the proposed suggestion has been 32 players. Um, sure, sure. Thir- yeah, 32 players, singles draw, No, no, not really a team event, just like an in, individual draw. Uh, you know, obviously, I think it's the way to go for sure. Knockout, um, one match and you're out. I think it would make it exciting. I think it would also be interesting for some countries. Like, so one, I think would make it more interesting and more compelling uh, from a uh, fan point of view is if they only allowed one player from each country to play. Can you imagine the arguments at the Egyptian Squash Federation? <laughs> like, say the Olympics were tomorrow or next mm-hmm. week, let's say next week, and you had to pick one player. And, and you know, obviously, Ali Farag's ranked number one in the world. So you would think, yes, you've got to send Ali Farag. But like, do we send the person who's most likely to win us a gold medal? The arguments between, sure, Ali's the number one now, but Shabagi was number one at this point last year or whatever the rankings were. Gawad, I mean, the depth of their team, of their players is incredible. So just the arguments at individual federation levels of who should go to represent us as the one player would be, you know what, that from a squash, can you imagine the squash boards and the squash stories and, you know, just all the message boards and Reddit and things like that, the arguing that would go on, it would be awesome. Yeah, you know, I think that that, and 
maybe we can test this as uh, maybe 32 might be too tough to fill out, but like, let's do a, a top 16 bracket. Right, right. A top 16 bracket. Yeah, exactly. It'd be, be, be interesting to see, you know, in this day and age, a little tougher with immigration laws and with the pandemic going on, but it'd be interesting to see uh, players if they have time applying for citizenship in other countries. <laughs> That's good. But, you know, what this brings up and what's interesting when I was working with you at US Squash and I was dealing more directly with like Team USA and under the USOC umbrella. When we were in, we were treated the same as every other sport. Right. Meaning I and a collection of other people with the national teams, we had a whole national team selection criteria we had to put together that then was literally vetted on a conference call with almost 20 lawyers uh, representing USOC. And they were asking questions that, um, you know, I could, it gave me greater insight into um, they were trying to eliminate as much as possible subjectivity. Right. And let's pick, there are a bunch of sports that are more selective, like basketball, soccer, mm-hmm. you know, where it's not, especially team sports here. We're fortunate in individual sport that it can be objective based on wins losses. Mm-hmm. How you position it is interesting. Like, are you going off a world tour or are you doing team trials, test matches, things such as that? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I can't even imagine the politics behind like USA gymnastics and things such as that, the trials and the picking their players and yikes, it's gotta be unbelievable how the politics behind it and the pressure and the coaches and the parents. And just, I mean, at least in squash as, as, as much as there's issues with those kind of things, at least in the end, you won, you lost, right? You got to 11 first, you won three games first. Yeah. And that's where sports that are judged, I think is always going to come under a certain level of scrutiny versus, you know, track and field or swimming, right? So there's much more of a... Hey, the 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 the, the monster break dance parent, wait till the arrival of that. It'll be like a New York Times magazine cover. You know, it's coming. It's coming soon. <laughs> well, you know, and this is our, our first run at this, but one of the things that we were thinking about was kind of like, hey, let's pick a topic that we, we introduce. You know, I think uh, we didn't quite do our hot take at the beginning, but like now that we've kind of talked about this it's like let's give where you feel personally from yourself buck and then also what you think of the sport so maybe try and summarize this for people out there trying to reconcile the news about the olympics break dancing and everything else we just talked about the olympics so where we net out i think uh what as far as netting out i think that the hurt feelings and the issues with squash fans you know squash not being in the olympics i think it was just explained to us explained to squash fans here's why you're not in there I think that's what's necessary. Otherwise, there's always going to be these, hey, there's deep state behind this. You know, it's always conspiracy theories, always things such as that. So I, I think the IOC would probably do itself a favor by instead of being opaque about it, just say, hey, we put breakdancing in because and whether we like the answers or don't like the answers, at least we know. Right. I mean, that's all we want. We just want the information. And I think that would solve a lot of wounds and, and, and make people feel better about it. And then in the end, you know what? Maybe we could just put this to bed because in the end, if they give us a list of reasons and say, hey, this is why, this is why, this is why, we may say, hey, look, squash isn't, you know, squash isn't going to do that. It's just not. And, and you know what? And let's move on. Let's grow our sport our way and not make the Olympics the end all be all anymore because you know what? We're not going to do that. And that's not going to happen with squash. So I, I think it's just knowledge and knowing what the criteria is and can we ever, uh, you know, reach that criteria. I've said this for a while. I think getting into the Olympics would be an absolute game changer for the sport. But I think we need to continue and double down our efforts on this. This isn't a deal breaker. Well, I I always hear people say, and it's a good line to say is, hey, instead of worrying that we didn't get in the Olympics, let's focus on the things that can get us into the Olympics, you know, and focus on those things to grow the sport enough where we will be in the Olympics. (laughs) 
and that's great. But in the end, do we know what that is? You know, reiterating my form, do we know what that is? We don't know what it is, right? I'm actually saying, forget the Olympics. Like, let's stop aiming there, right? That is where, and if it's a helpful byproduct, great. But so either way, if we're saying, hey, we're not aiming there, we want to grow our sport anyway. I think what we just identified was we probably have some other products to explore. Like here's sort of also my quick cock take on the professional game right now is that I think right now there's a lot of a single product going on, meaning there's a lot of tournaments and and a lot of individual knockout tournaments. What do I like? I like team sports. I like league structure. I like exhibition squash. I think exhibition squash has even a whole array of opportunity there, mixing from world team tennis. World team tennis does an incredible job of taking a sport and bringing big names to it, a cross-section of cities, a cross-section of personalities, and patching up the sport differently for other people to entertain. For sure. Um, I, again, I disagree a little bit. I mean, especially the team tennis aspect of it. it team team tennis is to me is more of an exhibition. And it's it's more like, it uh, but you don't get the big names participate. Like Roger Federer doesn't play team tennis. You know what I mean? Like not Nadal doesn't play team. So you're getting like an old timers game to go to. But Bill, what I'm trying to highlight is there's the tour, and that's where the best players go and they compete. Uh-huh. And I'm trying to say that, like, uh-huh. great. If we look at tennis and how they've had product extensions, the Legends Tour. Right. I, I liked watching McEnroe and Connors compete five years ago. I would mm. tune in. Yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, but, in person, I'd go. Would I go if they were in like down the street playing down at the Yale Tennis Center? Would I go watch that? Yes. Would I watch it on TV? No. Sure. But I'm saying I think you're interjecting yourself as a fan, not as what does the sport need to deliver towards other fans? Yeah, I, I think showing a diluted product to other fans isn't isn't the way to go. I disagree. Why are you saying it's diluted? Well, because if we're having like sixty year old Jim John McEnroe playing team tennis, that's the diluted product. That's not it, it, fair, fair to be said. I mean, there's there's a college player who could crush him, you know. Yeah. So it's, so I don't want to I don't want to watch I don't want to watch a lesser product of a sport being being put out there on television. Or it's interesting. I think you so, sound like some of the purists. Then not not a purist. I mean, just sound rational. I guess is really more more than. Yeah. So my thing being, and by the way, now Macron's used more as a coach, right? Like, so he's the, the coach. Look at the, what's the, the newest tennis adaptation, the, the, the Laver Cup? No idea. Yeah. So this is Europe versus the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, this Roger Federer initiative that is just. Right. Just, right. I th- and again, I, 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 those things are great and they are. And it's just like when golf, like with like the Ryder Cup and the President's Cup, and if they happen occasionally, like you know, once every other year, however that happens, or once a year, there's so much fun. But to me, I wouldn't watch that every weekend. I wouldn't watch it every other weekend. I want to watch the sport. It's an individual sport and it should remain in. I'm a, I'm not talking substitution. So how frequently should these occurred? I'm not saying every weekend, right? So it's like, what we want is, um, I would encourage different products for different reasons. That's all I'm saying. And I'm saying, you know, there's, when you look at supply and demand, not every single tournament in the world right now, regardless of what's going on, is sold out. No, of course not. So that's what I'm saying is like, there's a lot of supply, a lot of demand. So like, what are the other ways that we can try and do that to build the overall fan experience? And we can look towards other sports that are including that. And there's a reason why that's going on. I disagree, but that's okay. We disagree often, Connor. This is why we're having the discussion. Right. This is uh... once again. I'm right, and you're wrong. It's it's like a continued. Uh, it's continuing on. What's the saying? Since 2007, it has. Uh, well, this is where it'd be like inbounds or out of bounds. We need left wall, right wall. This is where if we were in a tournament and we were working it together, and you were calling me, I'd say go f yourself and hang up the phone. Which is a true story. Which is uh, a true story. It may may or may not have happened a few times. So. Yeah. All right.
Well, this has been fun. I, I like the testing this out. And, um, you know, wh- why don't we also quickly say the other parts that we might be doing for, for this kind of segment? Sure. I think I think the uh, my vision of this segment would be like a little bit shorter than this one, a little bit long, but it's also our first one. Um, and it, maybe after you edit it down, it'll uh, it, it'll be a little more compact and be a part of your show. You, you do some long form interviews with, you know, personalities in squash. And this would be more of like a preamble. And I envision it being something where we take a topic. This time we kind of jumped all around a little bit, you know, Olympics were the, the bigger part of it, but I think we'll pick a topic like gambling and squash and or wh- whatever the women's tour, the men's tour, the, the recent tournament that just happened, um, you know, how squash is going to fare during this pandemic on the pro level thing, whatever, whatever a hot topic would be for 10, 15 minutes and, and, and talk about it and give our takes on it. Yeah. And I think as much as we can sort of integrate hot topics, what's actually going on in the world of squash in terms of like black balls have obviously going on right now what your opinions are because you, you sure. track this pretty closely yeah and then who knows what the other stuff might come in i, I know you're very opinionated and you have a uh, sometimes you put deep thought into it and sometimes you put no thought sometimes i like my no thought better actually yeah, my, my, so, no, my no thought takes i'm thinking of um don't get fired I, that's the goal <laughs> i want to try and come up with like um you know what's your take on and it's just like you know pepsi or coke that what's the squash or sports version of that no for sure for sure for sure underrated overrated that kind of stuff so yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll play that out a little bit but i know that our, our 12 listeners will be looking forward to that well look if you make all people day i think that's that's pretty, pretty good for you buck thank you uh, all right well uh, appreciate you jumping on and there's more to come in this area all right connor Thank you so much for your time today and for joining us on Squash Radio. We hope you enjoyed this latest episode. But before you leave, we just have one quick last message. As you know, Squash Radio wants to help tell some of the best stories from Squash World. But in order to do that, we want and welcome your help. Do you know a person or a story that involves squash that is interesting, funny, moved you, you care about, reflects your passion for the sport? Well, share it with us and let's try and get it out there on the air. You can email me at squashradio at gmail.com or reach out to us on social media. Again, thanks for your time and well, until next time, be well and have fun.